Good morning, Christ Bible Church. I, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be with you today and Pastor Secord's invitation to be here. I'm very grateful for it. Some of our dearest friends on earth are members of this church and uh, involved in, in it. And we pray for you all. We think of you all. And also, it's a little daunting to think sometimes of coming here to preach because I know there are many good theological minds here and uh, people who are good preachers themselves. So I do appreciate it. And uh, if I'm a little nervous, that's probably why. But it's great to be with you today. You always do make us feel very welcome. Thank you for it. Recently, my attention has been drawn to the topic of our hope in God. And I want us to think about that topic today. I recently read an article entitled Radical Hope. Some of you may have read it by Peter Lightheart. And I want us to think about, uh, I read this article called Radical Hope, in which the author describes the, the dwindling of hope in our society and the desperation felt by so many. In a very real sense, it seems the world, as most of us have come to know it, that is at least the Western world, is ending. And we are entering into a new and different world. This change did not take, did not happen overnight. It's been happening for some time, and we could probably go back all the way to the time of the Renaissance and the Age of Reason in the 16th and 17th centuries to find its beginning. But recent events like the COVID pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, more and more extreme political positions and government regulations and policies seem to be pushing us over the edge. People feel like they're losing their health, their finances, their freedom, their security, and all around us, people are losing hope. Perhaps one of the foundational contributing factors from my perspective to all of this is the continual push for autonomy and the rejection of God in the Western world. We are taught that we are autonomous and free to determine and control all the details of our lives, except, of course, those controlled by the government. We're supposed to determine our own worldview, our own sexual identity, our morals, and even our future. But of course, we cannot control all those things, and we were never meant to control them all. So life is out of control. And unless you're a good pretender, if you are a part of this society, you're a part of a society that is basically without hope or quickly uh, losing any hope that was there. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 2.12, we are like the Ephesians before their conversion. They were without hope and without God. However, the problems we face are nothing new for God's people. Christians have always faced special issues that challenge their faith and hope. And today I want us to consider the situation of the recipients of 1 Peter, who were in Asia Minor, as we see in the first couple verses here in the first century of this era. And they're called elect exiles in the dispersion. Now, I might just say, I don't take that to be a social uh, description of them or a political description. I take that to be a spiritual description. They are exiles because they are elect by God. They are elect exiles. They are in dispersion. They are uh, just passing through this world on their home to their eternal inheritance. And... Uh, their situation, I think, is, is one that 
caused Peter to write what he writes about hope in God, and it is in many ways parallel to that of Christians, of course, throughout the ages. We're all on our way passing through as exiles in dispersion to our heavenly home. They were people who were facing informal public hostility for their faith, reviling, First Peter talks about insults, evil speaking, and even blasphemy, but they also faced the possibility of official persecution from the Roman government. Now, every commentary you read on First Peter isn't necessarily going to suggest that, but I, I believe that's true. I believe that an accus- accusatorial system had been established by Nero uh, when he first persecuted the Christians, that after that time, if anyone would bring a charge against a Christian as being a Christian, it, it could be considered a crime because they disrupted the peace of Rome. They were monotheists and did not worship all the Roman pantheon. And therefore, when problems came, the Romans considered the Christians to be the cause of that, uh, causing their gods to be upset with them. And so uh, during this time, if someone would bring a charge against you as being a Christian, if you suffered, as it says in 414 or 416, for the name of Christ, that uh, you could be, if the governor would accept the charge uh, and let it come before him, you could be charged with being a Christian and be guilty of that so-called misdemeanor, that wrongdoing. In the midst of that situation, Peter gives us some of the most important teaching in the New Testament about hope. Here's my proposition today. Here's what I think Peter teaches about this topic. And by the way, I didn't start with this proposition. Let me give it to you. My proposition is that the Christian life rightly lived is a life of hope in God. The Christian life rightly lived is a life of hope in God. Now, I I, I started thinking about, you know, how we should have hope in the midst of all of our troubles and things like that. But, you know... As I got into this topic and started thinking about it and thinking about what Peter's saying, hope is inherent to being a Christian. It's not just people in difficult situations or people in good situations or anyone else. It's people who are Christians, Peter says, that ought to have hope. They ought to have a hope that really no one else in the world can have. The most striking characteristic that distinguished the early Christians from their pagan neighbors was their hope. In fact, in every generation, hope has been a characteristic of God's people. That's my simple proposition, and my message is really simple today, too. And that's this. I have have two points. I want to share with you just some basic things that have just come off the page to me and been encouraging to me two different dimensions or aspects of hope that are described in these verses we read this morning. There are two mentions of hope. So the first one is in verse 3, which describes the first dimension of hope. The second one is in verse 13, which describes the second dimension of, I think, the hope that we as believers ought to have. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the benediction. This is the introduction to the body of this letter of 1 Peter. Here's why God is to be blessed. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to read the next few words too in verse 4. To an inheritance, we might say that is, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The first dimension of hope that is found in 1 Peter, and it's a noun here, the noun hope, is hope as an objective reality. Hope as a possession, awaiting for you. It's not a verb. It's not a command to hope in God. It's a, it's a reality, an objective reality that is outside of ourselves that is the hope that Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter. Now, I know Pastor Levi has preached, I believe he's still preaching through Colossians, and you should be familiar with this concept from Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul talks about the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's the same concept, the same idea, almost, uh, you know, very parallel passages. So this first hope, which uh, is found not only in Peter here, but is found also in Paul, is this objective reality that Christians have of a hope in heaven. Now, to, to try and explain this, what I want to do just simply is just break down this verse, just real basically. So the first part is the benediction. Then look at the next sentence. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to this living hope. Now the main verb here is he has caused us to be born again. God has regenerated us. That is the main idea in this verse. The regeneration is the basis of the living hope. Uh, The living hope that we have is a result, or we might say the purpose, of the regeneration of believers. That is the key idea of the verse. So you can understand, why should all believers have hope? Well, because all believers are regenerate people. This is the purpose. This is the end, we might say. This is, uh, this is what God's re- the result is of God regenerating us. Before we skip over it, let's talk just for a moment about what it means to be born again. Sometimes I think we take all these things for granted. To be born again is, of course, a work of God. No one causes themselves to be born. People who are born again have been caused to be born again, as the ESV translates it here, by God. The concept goes back to the Old Testament, to verses like Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verses 25 through 27, where Ezekiel talks about being sprinkled with clean water and the Spirit of God being implanted or placed in a person so that they, they live a different life. Jesus talks about it, of course, most famously in John chapter 3, where he speaks to Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, and is astonished, the text reads, that that Nicodemus didn't realize what he meant when he talked about being born again, if if he is the teacher of the Jews, because it's in the Old Testament. Jesus says it means being born of water apparently referring to the cleansing that's spoken of in Ezekiel and being born of the Spirit. And he repeats this idea over and over of being 
At least I think it is three times in that passage of being born of the Spirit. To be born again means to be caused to be regenerated by God, by God's work in our hearts. I think Peter explains it pretty well, actually, in verse 2, if you go back to verse 2 of this chapter. He called them elect exiles, and then in verse 2 he says they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That means according to the love of God the Father. God first loved them. God foreknew them. He chose them. He elected them according to his foreknowledge. And then it says they are elect exiles by the sanctification of the Spirit. God in his Spirit works in their lives and convicts them of sin and draws them to himself and regenerates them so that, as you will see the last prepositional phrase there, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. So they will obey God in faith. The obedience of faith. And, and put their trust in God and be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. For every person who experiences this new birth, which we experience when God works in our lives and we call upon him to, to save us, when we put our trust in him and depend upon him to be our savior, when we do that, when, when he regenerates us, we have a hope, it says in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The second thing that modifies this regeneration in this verse is according to his great mercy. This is an act of the compassion and love of God who forgives our sins and causes us to be pure in his sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says it's also in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now some people think that refers, that modifies the living hope, but I think it's better to take it as going back to being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does he bring in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, as part of the cause of our being born again by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? He does it also in chapter 3, verse 21. Let me try and explain it to you as I understand it. The, The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is, as I understand it, fulfillment of Davidic promise. I think we can gather that from from various passages in the New Testament. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He is the fulfillment of Davidic promise, the one who will rule forever. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And from that place in heaven at the right hand of God, he can administer salvation benefits and pour forth the Spirit in fulfillment of Davidic promise. And therefore, as I understand it, that's what Peter is talking about here. It's through that resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who is now at the right hand of God, and pours forth his spirit, which regenerates us, and uh, 
administers salvation benefits that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. Now again, let's go back to the living hope. That's probably our key idea here. The living hope is the purpose of regeneration of believers. The living hope here is not an attitude believers have. It's not a mindset believers have. The living hope here is an objective reality that believers have that is external to themselves that God has provided for them. That has to be true because look at verse 4. The living hope is further described as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's even further described in verse 5 as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise be to God. The new birth secures for a person an objective, glorious, future hope. And if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, if you are a believer today, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and and the Holy Spirit indwells you today, then you have a hope. You have hope. And you don't need to think about losing hope. This is a hope you can never lose. This is a hope that God has laid up in heaven for you. This is an inheritance. You are God's child. This is your inheritance now. This hope of eternal life, this hope of an inheritance, this hope of salvation. And if you want to know more what that salvation is all about, what that hope is all about, Peter describes it all the way down through verse 12 as he develops this idea of what this hope and salvation and inheritance involve. Now, uh, he comes back to it in verse 13. And that is my second point that I want us to look at this morning. That is the second dimension or aspect of our hope. The first one is this objective reality, a noun. But in verse 13, hope is a verb. And in verse 13, hope is different. It's a a command. It's a subjective attitude or a mindset that believers are to have. Look at verse 13. Therefore, now let's not skip over that word, because what he's going to say in verse 13 is based on all that he said in verses 3 through 12. Because you have this hope, Because of what God has provided for you in Christ. Because you have an eternal inheritance. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here, hope is not an objective reality. Here, hope is a command, a subjective attitude a mindset that I am to have and you are to have if we are believers. It is, I think, probably best described as Jesus. In other words, what is this uh, this, esca- uh, this hope in? It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think probably Jesus 
is as good a way as any to describe what this hope is all about. Look at verse 21. I think 21 says that much. I'm going to start in verse 20 of this chapter. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, this is Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. How do you have faith and hope in God? By believing in Jesus in this day and age. There's no other way. There's one way to God. And we can have hope in God by putting our trust in Jesus. By trusting in Jesus. And I think the the focus of this hope, when he talks about the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ... I think that hope is referring to, uh, of course, when Jesus comes again and we receive the inheritance and and we receive uh, the grace that God is going to bestow upon us and the glory that we are going to share in as we share in Christ. But I think it could be summarized perhaps in one word. That's Jesus. I mean, this, this, this... what, this object of our hope, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is Jesus. And he's the one, he's the one as we think about this subjective hope that is to be the object of our hope. Now, there's a couple things I, I do want to emphasize here, and this is maybe where I get down to do some actual preaching for a moment or so here. But... Uh, Notice in verse 13, there are a couple participles, verbs, that occur before our command to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Notice the first one, preparing your minds for action. Uh, Literally girding up the loins of your mind, but has the idea of preparing your minds for action. Preparing yourselves. And then being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on Jesus and on the return of Jesus. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the means of having this kind of mindset that is commanded here is twofold. Described by these two participles. Uh, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In other words, this is something that we need to we need to focus on, and we need to prepare our minds for. We need to be attentive. We need to pay attention, as some of the readings and songs that we've talked about this morning have referred to. When we come to the Word of God, when we think about our relationship with God, it's so easy to distract ourselves from the most fundamental questions of life. But with hearts like ours, it's it's possible, and it, it, it's uh, life is not too long that some people do it for a lifetime. Someone listed some of those things. They're not bad, but we need to discipline our minds to focus on Christ and His coming. Some of those other things are making a career raising a family, building wealth, planning vacations, getting promoted, watching movies, collecting sports cards, 
reading the news, playing golf, and on and on it goes that fill our minds sometimes. And in the long run, in the big picture, yes, they're important, but compared with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, I think Peter would say those things are kind of trivial, aren't they, if that's what you spent all your time thinking about? If that's what your hope is to get that baseball card you want or that the Twins could just win one game in this series or something, you know, whatever it is we're, we're pulling for. Uh, if that's where our hope is all the time, if that's what we're thinking about all the time, I think Peter is saying, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that especially also because of one other word in verse 13. The word fully. You see it there? Set your hope fully. Teleos. Completely. To the end. One main focus of my hope. Subjective. Is this objective reality. God has provided for me in my salvation. Jesus and my inheritance and all that Jesus has provided for me, all that he has done for me. Focus, we must focus on this one thing. Somebody put it this way, we are attention-shaped creatures. Where our attention goes, our affections and actions follow. And perhaps what Peter is asking us for here is something called ascesis. It's from the word ascetic. You get the idea now, monks and all that kind of stuff. It has to do with self-denial or severe self-discipline. That we would hope fully, that our mind would be set fully upon the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it involves denying impulses that draw our attention away from Christ's glory and Christ's beauty. I know, I, I believe you also went through the Sermon on the Mount not so long ago. Let me take you back there, some verses that perhaps you will remember. Chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, you've got your, your life focused on. That's where your heart's going to be. Now, the next verse is important. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye. I think we could maybe read that. What you pay attention to, what you focus on, is the lamp of your body. So if your eye is healthy, and it's the idea, of course, of being simple or single-minded. If your eye is healthy or single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you're double-minded, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? We must become wholehearted and attentive in our devotion to God. I think Peter is saying in chapter 1, verse 13. 
We must become the kind of person who is has rightly ordered attention. Not on created things, but on the creator. And we need God's help to do that. It's not natural to do it. We need to be reborn again. We need the word of God to cleanse our hearts and help us to pay attention to Jesus and to the things of God. Say, well, how do I know if I'm doing this? Well, I think Peter gives two evidences of this in the following context in 1 Peter chapter 1. There are two commands that are given here. In chapter 1, verse 15, Peter says, He who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. How holy are you? How godly are you? I think it's one indication. He's building on hope completely in God. And one indication of that is holiness. There's another one, I think, in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, which he's going to do when he, when, when he comes again, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear of God. How much do I fear God? Or am I scared to death of what people are going to think of me? Is my fear of God? And if I fear God more than I fear anything else, if God is the object of my respect and reverence, then that, that's an indication that my hope is in the right place. If I'm living a holy life, if I'm showing reverence and respect for God. Uh, let me give you another illustration of it, verse 5. It talks about the holy women uh, of the Old Testament times. And it's talking about their submission to their husbands. It says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, they hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting themselves to their husbands. How did they evidence their hope in God? By a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And that was an evidence of their hope in God. Anytime we obey God, anytime we choose the way of holiness, anytime we show reverence and respect for God, we are showing that our hope is in God, that our hope is in the right place. One, one of the results of hope in God is in chapter 3, verse 15. I want to share this verse with you also. You know this verse. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, set him apart, Always be prepared to make an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. See, our hope in God can be a cause of witness many times. It can cause other people to wonder, what gives them that stability? What gives them that confidence? And it it can be a great cause of being a witness to other people. The Christian life is a life of hope. That hope is focused on our final salvation. I haven't said much about that, but when Peter talks about salvation here, you may have picked it up. It's the grace which will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the salvation prepared in heaven for us. For Peter, the word salvation refers to our final deliverance. And our life now is a life of hope as we look for that final deliverance salvation that final deliverance god has begun a good work in us he has caused us to be born again but he will also complete it in this final salvation 
How do we demonstrate such hope in the world? By being Christian. That's what Lightheart says. I think he's right. By being Christian. Every time you trust God, you're showing hope. That's the basis, most basic part of being a Christian, trusting in God. Every time you obey God, you are showing hope. When we gather together and read the scriptures and pray, when you pray on your own, you are showing hope in God. When, 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 we, when we sing praise to God, when we have the Lord's Supper, we are showing hope in God. We demonstrate hope in God in this world by being Christian. All we do as Christ's followers reflects our hope because we serve a God of hope. Let's pray.